happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 260 for June the 1st, 2022. I am Wes Fryer, coming to you from rainy and stormy Oklahoma City, where for really just three more days, I am the Technology Integration and Innovation Specialist at the Cassidy School. Uh, we have wrapped up our school year and are having our last week of professional development meetings and packing up my room and getting ready. It's actually prom tonight for our daughters a senior. They do prom after after school ends. Um, and we got the big old baccalaureate. Uh, we got a bar I'm cooking. I cooked two pork butts, 18 pounds of pork last night. I'm cooking 30 pounds of brisket tonight. We got the big barbecue going on tomorrow. Awesome. Baccalaureate Friday, graduation Saturday, all the family. It's the big week. So joining me as always, and looking like he is in the basin of the bitter tooths, right? Or, you know, I, I'm going to guess it's Dr. Jason Neifer. So good evening, Dr. Neifer. And as I said before the show, you're, your hair is slicked back. You're looking quite svelte, but but I, I guess looks are deceiving. The haircut has not happened, I guess. No, it absolutely has not. And uh, as I was mentioning earlier, at this point, it's it's really I, I I think I could probably safely get a haircut. Um, and um, uh, my uh, my styles would happily mask up, but at this point, it's a personal choice. And since it's just so long and, and curly and kind of ridiculous at this point, it's, it's just out of sheer pleasure. So, um, but I don't think I'm here to talk about my hair. I am the executive director of the Montana digital Academy, which is Montana state virtual school located on the beautiful university of Montana campus in Missoula, Montana, not packing up anything at this point, but, uh, in fact, if anything, I'm, uh, getting sat for the summer so that we can make plans and continue to, uh, uh map out, uh, future plans for the program. So, but I don't think that's what we're here to talk about tonight. Wes, what is the Ed Situation Room all about? Well, we, uh, usually, we've skipped a couple weeks, so it's kind of yeah. been an every other week show for a little bit, but usually we're here on Wednesday nights to talk about the past week's technology news through an educational lens. Uh, basically it is Jason and my excuse to get together and talk and sometimes rant and dive deep into different tech news articles and trends and things that we're seeing and basically share some of the links that we found during the week. So if you go to our website, edtechsr.com and click the links button, you'll be able to see our Google document, which has actually now been split. Uh, the first 200 episodes are all on their own doc, um, but uh, episode 201 through tonight at 260, are here on this doc and tonight's topics are the technology correction, Amazon, the future, Apple, Google, media futures, app world, web three cryptocurrency, which I've actually got geek of the week about that too. Ukraine, Russia war, uh, artificial intelligence, the miscellaneous category that I know is Dr. Neifer's personal favorite right <laughs> after the serious tech news. And then we've got our geeks of the week that we will end with. So, it's been two weeks, and hello, Peggy George. We're glad to have you join us live. Where would you like to begin tonight's conversation? Well, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things going on in the kind of the general tech world right now, some of which has an application to school and some of which doesn't. But let me just talk about a really nerdy thing to start with. A 9to5Google reported on May 18th that Amazon is finally ref refreshing their Fire 7 tablet, and one of the most critical things it's bringing to the platform uh, is USB-C, so it finally has that modern standard. And I have to say that while I'm not necessarily a fan of the 
uh, Amazon software, which is, is Android based on the, the Kindle Fire tablets, it is super easy to get one of these dirt cheap tablets and then hack a copy of kind of regular Android onto these uh, devices. And um, I, I will admit, I already purchased one of these. It'll be here at the end of June. It's really $60 for a toy. I mean, this is like me buying something, uh, you know, at the uh, checkout counter. And it's like, yay, fun thing to play with. So I will get it and download um, a, a piece of software that's known as the Fire I'm sorry, Amazon Fire Toolbox, which is a PC program. You plug um, the tablet into your PC and run this program. It can do all sorts of things, including resetting the launcher on there and doing all sorts of, of installs on there. So it acts like a regular Android tablet. And I must say that if you are looking for a dirt cheap tablet that you don't care if you lose, you don't care if it ends up under a tire, you don't care if it gets dropped, it's pretty hard to beat either the 7-inch or 8-inch or the 10-inch Amazon Fire tablet, especially if you hack on uh, uh, the operating system so that you can run the Android uh, Google Play Store. So you can install all the different apps on it. Now, is Google underwriting the cost of that with advertising that would normally, sh if you don't hack it, would, would, would show kind of like the Kindles do where you're always seeing a new book ad? It depends on the version of the Kindle that you get. But... Yeah. Yeah. I think you think you mean Amazon, right? What did I say? Yeah. yeah Google. So, oh, yeah. No, sorry. Yeah. I meant, meant Amazon Kindle. I mean, yeah. you know, Google already gets a part of it anyways. But the yeah. part that, that's... We that have a few things going on in our lives, so please continue to... <laughs> Correct me as I say the complete opposite of what I'm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and now I'm I'm just going to stumble into an error too. But yes, it's exactly that. You can buy an ad version uh, for I think it's a good twenty dollars cheaper than the ad list version. And I have to say that if all you're doing is watching TV on mainstream streaming apps and reading eBooks on your Kindle the ads aren't all that intrusive. I mean, you, know, you have to understand you are buying an Amazon device, which means there's a bunch of tracking on here that will feed directly into the Amazon beast. But, you know, if you're comfortable with that, or if you're doing it on other platforms anyways, it's pretty hard to beat a $60 tablet uh, for consumption purposes. This is not going to be the, the place to edit your surprise Academy Award uh, uh, shorts nominee. Like, it's not going to be that, but it's a pretty compelling device for 60 bucks, and uh, the fact that it's now the, the modern USB-C standard makes it that much better. So I've got a, a segue to that with USB-C. We've actually got USB-C in several articles tonight. Uh, this one's down to our Chrome category, but we talked a number of months ago, actually, about some of the hazards and perils of USB-C and how, um, you know, all chargers are not created equal. It is a great you know, unifying platform as far as being able to have power, being able to, you know, have greater speeds, certainly than USB-A. Uh, but this is an article from The Verge on May the 27th. <clears throat> Chromebooks will now tell you when you're using the wrong USB-C cable. And I think this is fantastic. It's one of the things I think you had warned us about, Jason, was just watch out because you can actually fry your device. I mean, this could be phone, maybe more so, but Anyway, it is possible that plugging in the wrong, um, you know, wattage or, or, or you know, rated uh, USB-C USB cable, especially since it, you know, it's, it, it's power, right, uh, could actually be harmful for your device. So I think that kind of smart intelligence is a good thing. And um, 
you know, I'm continuing to love USB-C. I've got an iPad Pro that I actually have to give back to school. And it's one of the, the iPads that uses USB-C. But it's lovely because not that I've traveled a lot, but I have gone on a couple trips now. Um, I just take my, my USB-C charger and, you know, it charges my iPad. It, it charges my, uh, my Mac laptop. So I'm glad to see Google bringing that to the intelligence of the Chromebook. Yep, me too. Okay, where'd you like to go to next, sir? Hey, let's just cover all the USB-C articles. Okay. <laughs> this category is our us. normal, uh, you know, order. Um, but under Apple, and I think you uh, put these articles in here, um, The Verge reported on May 13th that Apple is reportedly testing iPhones with USB-C. So I uh, will put the question to you, Dr. Neifer. If a USB-C iPhone was available, would that be something of interest? It would be. And my understanding is that we'd be talking about iPhone 15, I think. I don't think it's in the pipeline for iPhone 14, which is likely to be the model released this year. But uh, it is something that I would be very interested in. In fact, the only device left that it, that I use that's not USB-C is my iPhone. Um, I have bought a couple of the little disc chargers, um, the uh, MagSafe chargers from Apple, those are pretty good quality, and those plug in via USB-C on the other direction. But for, you know, the cable sitting in my pocket, I, I have a couple USB-C cables in my daily carry bag. And if uh, iPhone moved in that direction, that means that would be the sole cable I would need. And I agree, and we've talked about in the past how USB-C can be very problematic, but if you buy high-quality cables and high-quality chargers... Um, you, you can use them across all these devices. And I think that's a very compelling user proposition. I don't have the box in here, but I have a, a good USB-C story because folks, you know, Dr. Neifer is very influential and, and sometimes he causes me to do things like go on TikTok and, uh, you know, barbecue, barbecue TikTok. I'll, I'll, I'll brag later, uh, you know, just how many views my, it, it is really amazing. Um, the difference between Instagram and TikTok. So, yeah. you know, Dr. Neifer mentioning that the latest, you know, the latest ribs, uh, 1,334 views. I mean, that may not be exciting to anybody else, but But you also mentioned in a Geek of the Week, a USB charging brick from Anchor. I think maybe it was a, our Christmas show or something like that. Uh, but our daughter has needed to get graduation gifts. Oh, what have we just ordered? Like, 13 or 14 of it's that $20 anchor uh 1200 millivolt or I don't remember what what that the rating is um but it's USB-C and it's USB-A uh and I mean that kind of thing can charge your laptop too so we're like this is a very practical gift for high school graduates that are gonna you know go off to college and whatever so anyway see the USB we'll just call this show the USB-C the USB-C show um I'm glad to see that kind of standardization uh, happening. And I would also be really interested. I mean, I've wondered, there's so many charging cables. In fact, now that I think with the watch maybe or what Apple doesn't give you all the, the chargers now or something like that. There's so many, yeah. I think of the bricks that are out in the ecosystem uh, that they just assume you have several uh, when you buy like a new watch or something right. like that. And then I want to mention Peggy uh, in the back channel. We we're talking a little bit about ads and, and intrusiveness. Um, yeah, man, I just, I, I rarely have to watch ads. And so when I do uh, see them on streaming, I'm, I, I have not made the jump yet to the YouTube. What used to be YouTube red. Now it's just called, is it prime or YouTube pro or I don't know. what. Yeah. I'm a subscriber, but um, yeah. I couldn't tell you what it's called. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I've, I've been on been on the edge of that. So. Yeah, 
Well, I will tell you that that just specific to that, uh, when I end up on an account that's not signed in to my personal account, the the advertising on YouTube is very jarring and much more. I mean, and, and, and in a way, it kind of biases me a little bit when I recommend YouTube videos or when I think about using them in context of instructional design in an online classroom, which is you know, part of my day job. And I worry about that a little bit because the advertising it keeps getting more intrusive on YouTube. And I feel like, especially with the longer videos being split into parts now, quite often that that's, it's a little discouraging. So. Yeah, it is. And I don't know what, if we're going to, if we're going to see that shift much, um, thankfully, and I don't know if this was part of their strategy, Google didn't kill the uBlock origin and some of the other ad blockers that on Chromebooks and on the Chrome browser, you can still, you know, block pretty much all of that. Um, but when it comes to your own consumer device, your television, uh, I think I had mentioned on the show a while back that I I actually bought a little $30 Raspberry Pi. And there's a program called Piehole, which is basically yeah. set up to, to be a block and a filter to try to block all ads coming in. But it cannot do that uh, within the YouTube application on Apple TV. Um, it You know, the Google engineers are... are uh, are too savvy as far as being able to find ways. To, I, basically, they put the the content uh, server, the the advertisement servers are on the same content servers, and so you can't like just block server X because it's an ad server. So anyway, all of that is continuing, and uh, you know we're continuing to live in a very advertisement and data data driven uh, you know computing environment where. You know, it is possible to to pay for elimination of, of advertisements in in different cases, and I definitely love my Spotify, and I love being a subscriber for different things. But it gets expensive, and it's a good thing to audit, which is something else we've talked about. All right, we don't have to talk about all USB C articles tonight. <laughs> um, well, yeah, let's do that Chromebook article, like because I think that's a a a, a good uh, direction forward. Chromebooks will now analyze and tell you if you have a poor USB cable. Um, uh, that's part of this process. So it's a, uh, it's another good feature. And I have to say, I am back in Apple world, but I obviously keep a Chromebook or two always at hand and the operating system is getting so slick. Like it's really, it's, it's getting a lot more polish. And I feel like that the, uh, capability they're adding is, is solid, uh, each and every version. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, I'd like to jump down to um, an article that I, you started an AI category. And so I put this one in there. Uh, this is the New York Times on May 27th, and I am now sharing my New York Times as well as Washington Post articles as gift links, so you don't actually have to log in if you're not a subscriber. The title of this article is Accused of Cheating by an Algorithm and a Professor She Had Never Met, an Unsettling Glimpse at the Digitization of Education. Uh, we have talked on the show about you know the pandemic Proctorio, which is this company that has made a lot of money. And our daughter, uh, who has just finished her junior year of college, has experienced some of this, where there's surveillance technology that watches you, and you cannot you know leave your screen. And in this case, the the situation that's described is that this Florida teenager is taking a community college biology uh, class. They were using a, not Proctorio, a, a product the school was called Honor Lock, and it flagged her as acting suspicious. Um, it uses Amazon's facial detection tool called Recognition, that is R-E-K, uh, Recognition. 
Um, and the the accusation was that she was looking away from her screen, you know, too often. And it describes, well, actually her at the end, she says, well, I'm just, let me see if I can read what it says. Um, All suspicious behavior is now reviewed by one of the company's approximately 1,300 proctors. Uh, they say they're going through rigorous training, et cetera. But the teenager, whose name is being held anonymously, we don't know who she, her name, graduated from Broward College this month. She remains distraught at being labeled a cheater and fears it could happen again. Quote, I try to become a mannequin during tests now. Uh, just basically staring at the screen and not looking at anything else. Man, uh, there's another article that I have about data collection for of, uh, of minors during the, the pandemic. But I just, I definitely don't think this is a great trend that we're seeing in educational technology. And Dr. Neifer, I'm sure at the Digital Academy, this is an issue which comes up uh, in terms of uh, academic integrity and, and honesty and things like that. So had you heard of this um, this ser- service? Um, yeah, Honor Lock. Yeah, uh, Black, uh, Honor Lock. Have you heard of that before? Yeah, I have. And I've, I've probably seen demos of all the ones that are listed at the beginning of that article. And I mean, I'm of so many minds here that, and we, we've, we've utilized a number of strategies, including human proctoring, requiring human proctoring in local schools. We have tried one of these products and decided to stop using it because it did feel like it ever so slightly had the creepy factor. Uh, we've also uh, uh, tried to work to make objective testing less of a part of our assessment and look at more performance-based assessments and things that really can't be um, uh, uh, plagiarized, uh, at least in, in, a, in a non-noticeable manner. Um, we also utilize uh, uh, plagiarism uh, analysis software uh, with written items, too, to try to kind of put this balance I, it's a hard one, and I have no clear answer here. And part of it is that um, I don't think the answer is that learning should only be about things that can't be uh, plagiarized, because I think that's a little problematic, and I think it also misunderstands the process of learning to a, a, a slight bit. But at the same time, um, you know, uh, everything can't always be human proctored, and you know, there is some argument to be made that monitoring is a, is a good thing and should be at least be part of the larger assessment regime. I have no clear answer to this, but I think these are the kinds of questions, especially now that we are uh, seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, I hope, on the, the larger pandemic, that as we start to sort through all strategies utilized in the last two years uh, to help deal with the global pandemic is in regards to classroom instruction and assessment, we need to start having these critical conversations. And unfortunately, I don't think it's a clear answer and there's not going to be until we figure it out as a, a learning community. One of the things which I, I very well may integrate into my lessons next year, I think I shared this actually a couple episodes ago as a geek of the week when I was at the Atlas conference in Orlando, saw a wonderful wonderful presentation on algorithmic bias and utilized a Google tool that allowed us to create a data set. We were trying, we were holding up fingers and trying to to create a a quick data set that was show, you know, was trained to be able to recognize those things with the webcam on, on our laptop. Uh, But just this idea of algorithmic bias, trying to reduce what Neil Postman called technopoly, but we see it a lot now with AI. In fact, I don't think I have this article, but there was a really Excellent article I read this last week about how we need to be actively combating the tendency to just, oh, it's the artificial intelligence. Oh, it's it's this all powerful. It's like the all knowing great and powerful laws or whatever. 
there's just a lot of limits to these technologies. Um, the people who are creating them are flawed. The data sets are not complete. Uh, and, and in some cases, we are giving over a large amount of um, responsibility and power to these, these, uh, these algorithms. And so, yes, I think the conversations about assessment and about the kinds of, uh, of learning interactions that we want to have, those are all very healthy and important. And, you know, hopefully one of the outcomes of the pandemic won't be the normalization of that kind of surveillance and kids having to, you know, pretend to be mannequins because they're just fearful that if they take their eyes off the screen, they're going to be accused of being a cheater. Sure, absolutely. All right. I will drop the link to the Anchor portable charger, by the way, the 313 oh, right. power bank. I'll drop drop that in if anybody is interested. Where would you like to go next, sir? Well, let's talk through some the, – the, uh, every article on that tech correction list is a rabbit hole. Um, let's talk about this one. It's some kind of culture of the future. Um, Elon Musk, which is usually not the way I like to start a sentence, but Elon Musk – uh, reportedly declares remote work no longer acceptable at Tesla. And this is from today's Verge. And um, there was apparently a message that went out to Tesla employees. Um, uh, uh, I don't, let's see here if I can find the whole message. Um, Anyone who wishes to do remote work must be in the office for a minimum, and I mean minimum, of 40 hours per week or depart Tesla. This is less than we ask of our factory workers. If there are particularly exceptional contributors for whom this is impossible, I will review and approve these uh, exceptions directly. Moreover, the office must be a main Tesla office, not a remote branch unrelated to the job duties. For example, being responsible for Fremont factory human relations, but having your office be in another state. Thanks, Elon. And I think this is part of this larger discussion, right? That, that some things that became very common place during the pandemic will start to uh, uh, be lifted and, and evolved in another direction. And I'm not saying that there isn't going to be a lot of permanent things that end up changing from the pandemic. But remember, a lot of talk, a lot of uh, chatter around uh, work and the future of work during the pandemic, like remote work was going to suddenly become a much larger part of, of, of what companies are going to do uh, with their workforce. Buildings would, 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 would cease to be as valuable as re- commercial real estate becomes uh, a basically empty. I'm not saying that that's not still potentially a reality, but let's not mistake that uh, there will be some folks of which the pandemic and the the, the changes that were uh, contained therein, um, it's just a reality. It's not it's it's not going to last uh, the, the the larger health threat and public emergency. So I don't know if that has any direct application to education, other than arguably the same thing could be true of education. In that you know I think we do need to take the opportunity since we had to experience this terrible situation to talk about what worked and what didn't and have that be a productive conversation. But I thought this was an interesting development today. I had a good conversation today with, uh, with some of our teachers talking about distractions and screens and, and how we contend with them. You know, it is, it is really challenging today to think about the workforce, uh, the reality of the workforce. You know, our, our son is back from, from Houston. He drove in. Uh, today. And, um, you know, he spent the first like 10 months of his post-college working life right next to me in this old bedroom with, without windows, you know, working on like three different computers. 
uh, remotely and, and never had met any of his, I guess he did, he, he did fly down and meet his boss. But anyway, the, the work environment was, it was all virtual. It was all digital. And um, I think that companies like Google and many others who've made huge capital investments, Apple, huge capital investments in, you know, uh, physical infrastructure um, definitely have an incentive to have people in, in, in person. So I don't know. I just, I don't know how we're going to bridge that in, in education. I think, I think that the pandemic helped us move forward with respect to some of that because, you know, teachers that had never had any experiences at all teaching online, um, you know, interacting with students online had some experiences, but I don't know <laughs> that many of them were optimal experiences. And anyway, I don't know how that, that needle shifts. So it's interesting to hear Elon say that. And, you know, that, that would be a great study to read, you know, looking at fortune 500 companies now, as we're leaving the pandemic, where are policies with that? I would hope that people are more flexible. Um, and there's certainly a lot of jobs that can be done even more effectively, you know, arguably, uh, and, and demonstrably. My, my sister works for a, uh, a dental uh, software company, and she had been wanting to work remotely for a long time. Actually, she worked for that software company. Now she, she's worked for an office, but she does IT support. Anyway, she can document how many tickets and how, how effective she is, and she's been doing great, and she loves it. But it took the pandemic, I think, to actually get her, her, her chain of command or whatever, you know, to authorize that. And now I think she's getting to stick with it. Um, but I don't, I don't know how we, we shift the needle. Have you seen that happen in, in Montana education as a result of the digital Academy, do you think? And in, in terms of opening up teachers' minds to, to digital work and, and, and people needing these skills of telework and, and working with a screen versus just sitting at a desk and, sure. and being together in one room. Well, certainly, uh, you know, the 130 or so teachers we work with a year have become effective advocates for the power of distance learning education. And one of the things that I think is really critical about this discussion, I don't think we've talked a whole lot about uh, the, the distance learning uh, environment, uh, despite my, my day job, but I think part of what at least I perceive of this, um, I get a little worried when people say that the distance learning or online learning is the future of education. I don't think it is. Uh, I don't think it isn't either. But what I think is that we have the opportunity, technology affords us opportunities to, to give expanded choices to students, uh, including access to distance learning environments. And while not every kiddo really wants to be an online learner, we have fairly persuasive evidence in our program that they're generally satisfied with the offerings. Uh, this semester, uh, it's another higher number for us since the pandemic. 87% of MTDA students that took our student perception survey were either satisfied or very satisfied with their Montana Digital Academy experience. That doesn't mean every kid is. Um, I'm more interested in the 13% because I'd like to find out what it is about this environment that is so discouraging or off-putting to those students. They tell us in some of these surveys that they really need the consistency of an online instructor. I'm sorry, a face-to-face -face instructor in the face-to-face -face environment to feel like they're engaging appropriately. Some are more social than distance learning oftentimes allows opportunities to, 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 to do. And I think that's a, those are important pieces. But in the same way that I think a student should have a choice 
not to take an online class, they should also have a choice to take an online class because it provides uh, 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 and affords a lot of opportunities uh, for students they might not otherwise have. Uh, maybe not even ways that you're thinking about. Uh, a lot of Montana Digital Academy students aren't taking an online class um, to, to take less work, although I would argue that generally speaking, it is as or more time consuming to be in a distance learning class, but rather they're taking it to free up their schedule to follow other passions. Uh, the number of students we have that want to take a third or fourth period in the music department or want to take another art class or want to take off early during the day to do an internship or perhaps do a part-time job that is in a future field uh, that they plan to work in is a, a, a good percentage of our students. And I like to think and, and I feel very strongly that giving students those choices and those opportunities is an important part to help our students head in the right direction in their lives. So um, that's where I think, uh, you know, I would hate to give up th those flexibilities and opportunities for students because it, distaste of distance learning, because of hastily put together, sometimes uh, uh, unfortunate situations because of lack of resources or training. Um, uh, uh, teachers, I think, can't argue they didn't leave it all in the field the last two years because obviously uh, we got this far and, and, and I think most students are generally headed in the right direction. We've got work to do, but they're generally headed in the right direction, I think. But I think we have to be realistic that we need to continue to refine these types of learning environments. And we, yeah, and it's so important to not paint with too broad of a brush. It's easy to do this in a lot of different contexts, but oh yeah, I took a distance learning course. Oh yeah, I know about distance learning and distance ed online. What was it? You know, when I was the director of distance learning at our college of education at Texas Tech for five years, one of the things that I m lobbied for mildly, not, not in a, in a super strong push way, but I wanted us to have our syllabi for our different courses online just so that kids could see what the differences were because we had in the same college completely different experiences where you were basically in a computer-aided instruction taking courses and in WebCT at the time, um, you know, and, and sort of just, you know, teach, teach yourself, take the exams, um, you're done with the class, minimal interaction, in fact, almost no interaction at all with the instructor versus some highly interactive um, hybrid classes that were both synchronous and asynchronous. It just, it, there was so, so much, uh, so many differences. So I would love, I know that there are some, I've heard of some school districts requiring an online course uh, as a graduation requirement. I don't know if there's states that are, that are doing that. Um, I think that we should look at professional development for teachers uh, having some online components. I know that, you know, we've got a lot of teachers taking advantage of, you know, because of the pandemic, um, online offered professional development. But I, I think that in addition to taking professional development, you know, when you have a chance to teach, um, there's just there's so many good conversations to have about how is it that I want my kids to learn this material? How am I going to present this? How am I going to assess it? How am I going to have my students process it to try to own it? And how can I, you know, make their thinking visible and get a, a glimpse into what they're learning and thinking about all of those kind of things I think are so good. And we really should be doing more in the way of, of ongoing professional development. It needs to be a part of pre-service teacher education. And certainly there's a higher likelihood that students in colleges today are going to be having, you know, hybrid and online experiences as part of their 
um, their preparation program and their degree programs. But I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done uh, with respect to teachers. Um, anyway, because there's just a lot of traditional, hey, pandemic's over. We're back to the old days. I don't know if <laughs> yeah. that happens in Montana, but let me just tell you that's, you know, that's happening in some other parts of the country. Yeah. Elsewhere, you might say. That's right. Don't know where, but some other places I've heard about. All right. Um, let's see. Uh, I think I put a couple other Google articles in here. Um, this one from The Verge today. I think this is exciting, but, you know, I'm not going to hold my breath. Uh, Google is combining Meet and Duo into a single app for voice and video. One of the things that Google has been criticized for, I would say very justifiably, is having just all these different products and not necessarily having all of them, you know, tie together with a common strategy and then different kind of communication strategy. Was it Google Wave? Remember that? Did you ever try Google yeah. Wave? And, um, yeah. Anyway, just experiments, which, which can be good. But um, what I think is interesting about this one, so Google Meet, you know, especially during the pandemic for schools, became a massive platform. Uh, that was our primary platform, although we had some teachers on their own, you know, using Zoom. Our school endorsed and supported platform was Google Meet. Uh, Google Duo has been more for messaging. One of the things that they're trying to do, and it talks about um, the head of this, and his name is Javier Soltero, the head of Google Workspace. Um, I like this. Um, our lives, our digital lives are filled with a million different chat apps, each with its own rules and norms and contact lists, some for work, some for personal. Google is hoping it can use Gmail addresses and phone numbers to bring that all together. So they're also trying to help it be smart to know what device to ring on. I don't know if you've had that happen with your phone and your iPad and your computer, but with, you know, Apple, if, if you authorize that, you can end up with your phone, your phone, your, uh, your watch is going off your phone and just, it's like all these different places. <clears throat> it certainly is a fractured environment for messaging. So I think this sounds like a positive thing for Google. Um, and if they can uh, figure out, uh, you know, the cross-platform side of this too, right? That's uh, an important key for them. Um, you know, anyway, this caught, caught my attention. One thing, though, I wonder about is Google Meet is our platform, for instance, at school um, for uh you know, doing remote learning. Um, not that we've had to do that a lot, but I think we actually did have a snow day or an ice day this year where we had some remote learning going on. Um, we also have for our middle schoolers, the chat features within Google um, blocked. And again, I've had conversations with, with teachers concerned about this and the messaging apps and, and things like that. So if there's a more tighter integration with Meet and Duo, and I think the name Duo is even going to go away. It's just going to all be Meet. I wonder what kind of granular control school admins will have to say, well, you know, we don't really want our middle schoolers to, to be chatting with that. Um, you know, if it's going to be an either or, well, then they can't have me, you know, they're, they're going to have to have them all together. So any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I, it, I, it seems like the closest strategy I've seen yet to a unified uh, messaging and, and communication platform strategy. So I think they keep getting closer. Um, I will say that, uh, I hope they some at some point tie in Google Voice into that as well. Um, I love Google Voice; it's still one of my favorite uh, Google tools, and I'm honestly surprised they still it's still around because it seems like it's a, a bit of a, a kind of background uh, tool for them. But um, you know, they keep experimenting. I mean, it's 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 
it's kind of a meme now that Google can't get its its uh, conferencing slash communication strategy together, but this seems like a good step forward. Definitely. Um, and then there was one other Google article. Um, the <laughs> I've never heard of this website before, but it but it links to the Google blog. This is the XTA Developers website. I know what this is. Do you okay from a three? Yeah. Uh, Google Drive finally adds support for common keyboard shortcuts. And this may seem like, oh, my gosh, but, yeah, it's a it's a big deal. So using control C or on a Mac command, you know, X for cut, V for paste, uh, those kinds of um, of keyboard shortcuts are now going to function in Google Drive. And I'll drop the link into our chat. And they've got a nice animated GIF there. And I like how Google does that, actually, with just the – you know, no words. You don't have to push play. You just see see this repeated um, uh, animated GIF. But um, you know, just some additional features and enhancements coming to Google Drive. And um, I think I you know these kinds of it's always good to see these improving because guess what? We are at our school certainly spending more time than ever. You know, in Google Drive. And um, it's also, by the way, not a bad thing to to offer some professional development sessions or opportunities for teachers to be able to brush up on, you know, Google, Google drive skills. Um, my wife and I are in the process of migrating our data, you know, from the school, which we're going to lose access in a month to <clears throat> these email and Google accounts. Um, the more organized that we've been in the past, the better that benefits us yeah. now when we're trying to, to save things and get things uh, organized. So uh, Peggy's got a question there in the chat. I'll, I'll throw it to you, Jason thoughts on Cheryl Sandberg, uh, Departing Meta from uh, COO. I had actually seen that headline, but I don't think yeah. I, I put that one in. I saw it earlier too. And um, it's a time of change at at Meta for sure. And um, you know, fourteen years is a long time for someone in such a prominent uh, position of power that's not the CEO or founder. Um, so uh, I would imagine that she's heading off into. Um, uh, uh, heading off into uh, a new venture. I imagine she has enough money that she doesn't need to work if she doesn't want to. Um, but, uh, I wish her well. And I'm still kind of curiously scratching my head about what happens now, uh, or what's going to happen with Meta because they're clearly going all in, uh, on the metaverse. And I believe I also read a headline earlier that they're changing their stock ticker uh, name to Meta away from FB. So clearly headed in that direction. Well, let's just segue to a meta article, and I'm going to have to figure out where I put this category. I guess I put it under under tech correction. Um, this is bad. So this is Business Insider on May 30th, and the head, the shorter headline, there's a longer headline, um, which I'll read the longer headline. A researcher's avatar was sexually assaulted on a metaverse platform owned by Meta, making her the latest victim of sexual abuse on Meta's platform, Watchdog says. Um, the article describes different researchers. Uh, there's a report, I guess, that came out from a group called Some of Us. Uh, and the title of the report is Metaverse, Another Cesspool of Toxic Content. Um, the immediate story of this researcher was there is a there's this safety protocol that they have in this world. And so the name of this world is called Horizon World, um, and you can. It has a safety thing that will prevent people from getting in within four feet of you or something. Uh, basically, you have a hula hoop, and people can't get in close. And the people she was with, who of course were strangers, had convinced her 
and she was a researcher too, I guess. So interested in what's going to happen, but anyway, took, took that restriction off and then inappropriate things happened. So, um, it is going to be super interesting to see where all of this goes, uh, in terms of, of meta. And I think in that article too, and I've read Zuckerberg is saying, Hey, we may lose money, you know, for three or four more years and, until this, um, this kicks off. And, uh, the amount of money that they are spending on this is, is billions of dollars. I mean, it is crazy amounts of money. Um, so I certainly don't think that, you know, this article or this headline is going to derail the trajectory of where they're going. But another thing that was very interesting in the article is that, you know, there are groups pushing for transparency. Have we heard this before in the tech correction? Yes, we have. Um, because, you know, it's helpful, for instance, to know, well, just how many campaign ads were purchased, you know, during the last election cycle or, or whatever. Um, and, and Meta is not, as you might guess or be able to predict, you know, super excited about reporting um, these kinds of, uh, of incidents that are, that are happening. And so there was a shareholder meeting um, the previous week on Wednesday, the proposal was introduced to complete a third party assessment of, quote, potential psychological and civil and human rights harms to users that may be caused by the use and abuse of the platform and whether those harms can be mitigated or avoided. And that proposal was voted down. So, um, you know, this is going to be something to continue to watch. It reminds me of, of Second Life. I don't know how much you got into Second Life, Jason, back in the day was over 10 years ago or whatever. I mean, I dabbled in it, but I was like, yeah, I'm not really, really big on, on that, but just, you know, there, there's going to be a dark and a seedy side um, to yeah. virtual reality, just like there is to, to actual reality. reality yeah. and, and my thought would be, let's be careful as we hopefully should be with everything. Uh, you know, what students have unrestricted access into. Um, so anyway. That's kind of a dark article. You don't have yeah, to comment totally. on it if you don't want to. We can just move on. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and rabbit hole, here we come. Uh, 9 to 5 Mac on April 26th uh, quoted a leaked report that says that Facebook has no idea how to manage its user data. Now, now check this out, Dr. Fryer. Uh, the internal document is basically uh, uh, from uh, from pri privacy engineers at the uh, Facebook ad team, you know, which would be the most likely to have a privacy issue, right? Because the advertising is the problem here. Um, and basically, um, uh, uh, the engineers detail how Facebook could deal with local regulators asking for new privacy measures to protect user data. However, according to the report, even Facebook engineers agree that the company has no control over how user data is managed internally. The Facebook ad team warned the social networks directors or directors that the company would have a hard time promising governments, in other words, complying with regulation, uh, any changes in these aspects. And quote the report directly, we do not have an adequate level of control and explainability over how our systems use data, and thus we can't confidently make controlled policy changes or external commitments, such as we will not use X data for Y purposes, wrote the authors, report's authors, and yet this is exactly what regulators expect us to do, increasing our risk of mistakes and misrepresentation. And if that doesn't tell you everything you need to know about how complex this is and also how scary this is, that's it. Wow. Well, when we get to my Geek of the Week, I was listening to a, a podcast where some folks were talking about, you know, Facebook imploding just be based not on 
the behavior of others, but just the behavior of its own employees and leadership. And this would seem to support that kind of an idea. So, um, yeah, I really don't have a lot of faith in, in Facebook's treatment of data or their, the, the future that they would take us into or, or just about anything. I will say I love using Facebook and being able to connect with people and keep up with them. I mean, it's a good thing. I yeah. took out all the posters uh, in my classroom and my, my host mother in New Zealand, who I'm connected to on Facebook, uh, made a little nice comment about, uh, hope your New Zealand posters will make it into your next classroom. And I mean, there is no way I'd have that kind of interaction, you know, absent Facebook. Um, it may seem like a small thing, but those things are, can really be a quality of life enhancer, but yep, totally. I, um, I, I'm, I hope, are you on Mastodon by the way yet? Have you joined? Not yet. I almost set up one last weekend, but mm-hmm. uh, I feel like it, it's, it's, it's kind of where actually I, I might be headed here. Well, well, let me tell you uh, that it feels a little bit, and I've, I've heard other people say this in, in Macedon, like the early Web 2.0 days, because you have a very, a much smaller group of folks using Macedon. And for those of you that do not know about Macedon, Macedon is um, a federated Twitter, basically. It's a federated social network that is very Twitter-like and allows you to, just like email, anybody can set up their own server. You can join uh, servers that are moderated by different people, uh, different organizations have different rules, and um, you can... um, you know, communicate just like we do with email with anybody who's in the the Mastodon universe, whatever server they're on. So there is a link to my Mastodon account, which I set up, I don't know, a couple of years ago and haven't really used a whole lot, but I'm, I'm checking in with it every once in a while. And, you know, there are people, uh, Ben Wilkoff, I, I know Peggy will remember Ben from his, was it, was it called six second videos or eight second videos for learning or whatever? He basically did a vine like, you know, K12 online, which is still one of my favorite presentations of all time. He's like totally shut off Twitter. Uh, he's used some kind of GitHub uh, app to, to archive his own copy of all tweets that he's ever sent. And, and he is done as he says with the bird site. And he is, um, we've actually had him on early on the, in the history of the show, I think, um, because he, he tuned in a little bit. I think I, we scared him off because we'd be like, hey, it's Ben, come on live on our show. But anyway, um, it's it's cool to see that kind of innovation happening. But, you know, Facebook, it's I, we need to, to see continued innovation um, around social media. I don't know if we're going to see a company, and that's, of course, why they have such value, have the reach across demographics and international boundaries and just, you know, Facebook is huge. Um, but there's also some fun to being in a social network that involves a smaller community of folks. And in this case, it's sometimes a lot of the educational tech geeks and, and people that are sharing that kind of stuff. And it's not commercialized in the way that Twitter is. So I think you should set up a Mastodon account, Dr. Knight, for <laughs> jump <Okay>. in. <laughs> yeah, clearly, because I don't have enough nerdy things to do on my weekend. So uh, should we do some Apple stuff? Because there's one article I really want to talk about before it gets too old. Uh, Definitely. This is, this is from a couple weeks ago, but Apple has discontinued the iPod Touch. Um, and uh, that means they no longer have, have an iPod 
available for sale. And I believe, if I understand correctly, the last iPod sold out pretty quickly after that. A lot of people went in to uh, kind of uh, engage in the nostalgia of, of owning one of the last iPods. And it was 18 years ago this July. No, is that right? Oh, my Lord, it is right. Uh, 18 years ago this July, so my 18th wedding anniversary, that I received my first iPod, which was a third-generation iPod, um, it, it, it had the, the click wheel and the buttons and the, um, uh, LCD screen, uh, that was monochrome and it held all the music in my pretty large music collection and it absolutely blew me away. Um, and I, it was really the start down the rabbit hole that eventually kind of put me into the Apple universe and, um, I've actually, and I think I mentioned this uh, a couple of uh, uh, years ago, uh, during the first year of the pandemic, I had refurbished a number of older um, iPod touches, or not iPod touches, iPods, like uh, first, second, third, and fourth generation iPods. And I have two or three of them laying around the house that have a pretty decent library on them that I really enjoy listening to the music on. But uh, and that was, So that was a successful experiment as far yeah. as the refurbs yeah. and... I, I was able to do two things. I not only, uh, in, in some cases, put in a much larger battery, but I also was able to uh, change out the hard drive for an SD card, a micro SD card based storage system. So I do have an iPod mini running around here somewhere that's got 256 gigs of storage on it, which is massive. Uh, that's a huge music library and probably many, 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 many weeks, if not years of music uh, that I can play. But, you know, it loses a little bit. It's harder to search and such. And you can't, you know, use your Spotify collection on there because those are streamed. And you can't talk to it and tell it to play a no. song. You can't. Um, <laughs> but I will say that, and again, I keep it charged. Uh, you have to use the old 30-pin charger, which those are getting a little long in the tooth, too. Um, and I, as I remembered it, they, they break pretty easily. So, Do you sync it to iTunes, or how do you yeah. sync the music? Yeah, um, I have a, an older... Um, wow. Uh, I have an older Mac Mini that uh, I keep around uh, to be able to easily do this. It has a modern version of... I can't remember uh, which version back of OS uh, 10 it has, but uh, yeah, the, the newest versions work pretty well. Um, and, uh, I've also tried to plug one into my M1, uh, I, or I'm sorry, Mac mini at home. The interface is a little wonky because they didn't carry over quite everything to the M1 Mac, but still works. Yeah. When Peggy's saying she still uses her iPad, iPod that is loaded up with podcasts. Yeah. So there you go. Awesome. Well, we have jumped around all over the place today. Yeah. Um, what about this Weather Channel one? You want to talk about that? Oh, good. I just, that's what I was going to talk about this one. This one's a little. Uh, this one's a little like you know, look at the future of media. But this is a really interesting article from The Verge that the Weather Channel uh, now offers an opportunity to subscribe to the Weather Channel, but via an app. And so it's uh, available on all the platforms, including uh, streaming TV platforms like Apple TV. And, you know, the Weather Channel in the past has been dominated by cable subscriptions, right? Because that's the way you get access to it. And you can buy online cable prescription or prescription subscriptions. Uh, so that works out there, too. But for a long time, the Weather Channel was asked by viewers, I don't want to go spend $250 a month. I like the Weather Channel. Can you sell it to me cheaply via a streaming app? And the answer is yes. It's $2.99 a month. And this article really struck me because um, I've always hated the cable model. Like, you know, obviously 30 years ago, it was super interesting because, 
you know, uh, I, I grew up uh, uh, for many years in a three channel household. Um, uh, it was such a part of my uh, existence that that uh, we could get Spokane channels where I grew up in, in, in Great Falls, Montana, that you had to have a good antenna to get them. But it would have all the networks, a network programming a couple hours later because they're in a different time zone. Uh, and I would watch Saturday Night Live at uh, 1030 at night on Saturday and then at 1230 I'd switch the channel to the Spokane channel and watch it a second time because that was the kind of late night nerd I was as a little kid. Well, cable was a huge change for me, right? First 30-ish channels and eventually hundreds of channels. But most people don't watch most cable channels. And in fact, it's the exorbitant high prices of things like CNN um, that uh, uh, and ESPN is probably the better example there. Um, that, that really subsidize the rest of those channels. And most of them are relatively, uh, relatively low value. But the reason why they've been hesitant to break them up is because, uh, it, it, it really does get rid of the value proposition, right? That, uh, you're not getting, if you have to pay $15 a month for, uh, ESPN access in its various channels, that, uh, uh, makes the other channels a, a much less good deal for, for the expanse of, of the service. But as the article talks about, people really like just the weather channel. Some people watch the weather channel all day long and it's just on in the background and they have quite a few subscribers that are happily willing to pay $2.99 months just to get access to the weather channel. And I say, good on you, weather channel. Huh. Well, the article also says, and I had no idea about this, uh, from a content perspective, the weather channel, let's see. Oh, uh, it's different. The, the website is different. So it's owned by IBM. And here, I just lost my place. Do a quick search here. Can we find where I was on there? Because um, I don't know. I'm not tuning in all this time. But um, the weather channel, as you know, it online and in mobile apps is owned by IBM and is an entirely separate entity from the TV network. As a result, you can't stream the weather channel service on mobile or PCs, only TVs, until this app has come out. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Folks, maybe it's time to reevaluate all of your media consumption habits and decide whether you should just watch the Weather Channel. In today's polarized environment, (laughs) this might be a a healthy choice for us all. Yeah. Well, and I will say, and I think I mentioned this in the past, uh, the last couple of months I've been subscribing to Google TV, I'm sorry, YouTube TV, which I really should cancel because I'm not using it nearly enough. And I did it for the Olympics and then I did it for uh, the uh, NCAA uh, basketball tournaments, men, men and women's basketball tournaments. So that was a part of, of, of why I also continued to purchase it. But to be honest, the deal my wife and I have is that if I don't get cable or if we don't get cable, then I can subscribe to any streaming service I want to. It's still well, well, well less than I think we're subscribed to two or three at a time at least. It's well less than what we pay for what we pay for cable. Cable is just not a very good value. Yeah. Peggy is echoing that she, yeah, she's not, not liking the fact that you have to pay for all the, all of the channels, whether you watch them or not. So yeah, Peggy's got some podcasts going back to 2009. Oh, wow. Nice. Old stuff. All right. Um, let's see, where else should we go? We're just kind of like randomly, uh, you want to do the crypt? Well, I guess that was my article. Well, you can do the cautionary tales. Okay. So under web three cryptocurrency, this, because it ties to my geek of the week, uh, the Verge, this is a little old, but uh, May 1st said that the Wikimedia Foundation has stopped accepting cryptocurrency donations. Um, what I'm going to share on my Geek of the Week is r- definitely the best 
deep dive into crypto and then helping me kind of wrap my brain around it. Um, it reports that just a, just under um, a tenth of a percent of the donations that the Wikimedia Foundation received last year, it's $130,000, were received in uh, crypto um, donations. But um, the majority of their community that had about 400 members uh, voted to do away with it. Um, and they talked about the environmental implications of Bitcoin, the risk of scams, uh, the fact that it's really not that much of the, the donations that they, they get, um, that there's issues with cryptocurrency. So anyway, I thought that was interesting that it caught my eye a few weeks ago. And then you want to pick up your, your cautionary tales? Can I, um, actually, that's I your article. Is it really? Well, yeah. see, that's what happens. So when I, you know, don't talk about anything <laughs> for a long time. So yeah, on, on May 10th, the Harvard Business Review wrote an article, cautionary tales from, um, oh, yes, uh, from Cryptoland. And then this one, yes, this is how I, okay, this, this I think, took me down the rabbit hole. Uh, Molly White is a software developer and a Wikipedia editor, but she is um, an author of a website called Web3 is Going Just Great, uh, which tracks scams, hacks, rug pulls, collapses, shady dealings, other examples of problems with Web3. Um, and anyway, that, so... Finding her, this is this is what happens sometimes when you are looking for articles for the EdTech Situation Room, uh, was absolutely great in terms of following her. I haven't, you know, re- been to her website, but I think she has a book that she's written about this as well. Uh, but definitely someone who is very, very critical, um, not only of cryptocurrency, but of Web3 and a lot of hype that's happening around uh, some of these technologies. So I thought those were both worth checking out. It's been a while, but I and I will say we had we had conversations earlier, and this is the case. My dramatic fortune in Dogecoin does not seem to be coming to fruition. I still am way up on my Dogecoin purchases, but uh, the value is about one tenth of what it was um, uh, during the height in two thousand twenty-one. Well, why do you want to do anything before Geeks of the Week, or shall we Geek of the Week it? No, let's Geek of the Week it. Okay, well, um, so my Geeks of the Week tie right into that, that uh, line of, uh, of thinking about crypto. So um, Dan Olson, who is a Canadian, has a video up called Line Goes Up, The Problem with NFTs. Um, and we have talked about this on the show. And this is, this is a category of things that I'm like, I don't understand this. I know this is a big deal. Uh, it's helpful to you know, get together with Jason and talk about it to try to get my head around a little bit more. Uh, NFTs are the non-fungible tokens. And these are the crazy stories of people saying, yeah, somebody, you know, paid a million dollars or some crazy amount of money to own the digital version of this slam dunk that Michael Jordan did in, you know, 20 years ago or or something or to, to purchase the digital version of this. So the bottom line to this, um, and his channel is called Folding Ideas. He's got uh, 717,000 subscribers, but this video line goes up the problem with NFTs. It's two hours long, but it has almost 8 million views. It was put up in January. So that is a geek of the week. And then the other thing is I just listened, uh, shout out to my friend Brian Turnbaugh for 
uh, pointing me to this, Ezra Klein, who is, works for the New York Times, has a great podcast called The Ezra Klein Show, um, has a great interview with Dan Olson. And I listened to that entire thing yesterday and today. So um, basically what this seems to point out in really clear, it reminds me of debate in terms of the way that the argumentation, especially in the video, is presented um, is that this is really a scam. This is something that people have been touting and, oh, it's so complicated, but you can get in on it. Um, you know, you can't really use Bitcoin today and even Ethereum and some of these other coins as a replacement for currency. And, and people are looking for these really, really big uh, multipliers of, of uh, investments. And so anyway, I just I recommend it. It really does point out how there's so many commonalities between other kinds of, I don't know, Ponzi schemes or just different uh, kinds of scams that people have have tried to push uh, in in time. And he's extremely articulate. And if you just want to look at it as a study of like a documentary video produced by, you know, uh, I mean, I don't know what he does professionally. Maybe he is a professional videographer, but it is a superbly um written and uh performed video and and extremely persuasive and it just and it really has me i think understanding nfts and crypto a lot more that this is something that people have concocted to that has a lot of of uh just like we were reading in that last article a lot of environmental impacts a lot of perhaps unintended consequences but this whole idea that it's going to save the world and it's going to fix all our problems is really a lot of hype um so maybe you'll have a chance to take a look at that day so we can talk about it a little bit more but that's yeah i will say based on your link on twitter i watched the first 15 minutes and it was both enthralling and um concerning is the way i would describe the situation so yeah okay great and what do you got for us yeah i have a really quick tool that i discovered a couple of days ago on one of those random websites you should know about Liz. it's called whiteboard w-i-t-e-b-o-a-r-d cool uh uh tool Basically, you start a whiteboard, you send the link to someone else, you can both draw on it at the same time. I think it'd be really useful if you're ever doing live tutoring, live one-on-one work with someone else. Um, it's really easy to uh, start a whiteboard, W-I-T-E-B-O-A-R-D, a whiteboard, and send it off to someone else, and you both can draw. Works really well in touchscreen, I've discovered, which includes both an iPad touchscreen and a Chromebook touchscreen. So that's whiteboard, W-I-T-E-B-O-A-R-D.com. Dr. Fryer, where can people find you on the internet? Westfryer.com slash after. I've recently updated it. So basically every social media link that is past or present is there. How about Your you? Mastodon link there? Which, yeah, it is. It is. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's my, my, la- my last social media link. So I know, I know who to add then when I create my Mastodon site. And I am at Tech Savvy Teach on Twitter. This here is the EdTech Situation. We are a once a week broadcast that broadcast on Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Central Time. Later this summer, we'll be moving to a brand new hour, 7 p.m. Mountain, uh, 8 p.m. Central Time, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where Dr. Fryer uh, will be relocating soon. If you can't catch us live, although I wish you would, uh, please find us wherever finer podcasts are aggregated. You can go to our website, edtechsr.com, get a tiny MP3 of the show, or check out all the links. You can also see us on YouTube and Facebook. Uh, thank you for joining us tonight for the EdTech Situation Room. Stay safe, stay savvy, and we'll see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room. Good night. Adios. Day.